Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is JF. Phil and I have a new neuro-learning course starting on June 8th, The Twin Peaks Mythos, an inquiry in the form of a view-along. This course consists of four weekly screenings of select material from the Twin Peaks television series and the feature-length film Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. We'll be commenting on the films in real time, making connections, exploring themes, and picking up on symbolic resonances in an exercise recalling the great director's commentaries of the golden age of DVDs, except we're not the directors, needless to say. If this is something you might be interested in, you can get more information by going to neuralearning.com. That's N-U-R-A learning.com. Each screening will be followed by a lively group discussion, so we're hoping for a big turnout of committed weirdos who are eager to divine David Lynch's landmark series with us. This week's episode is special because we recorded it in person, something we've only been able to do a few times in the past. You see, last week, Phil and I were at my family cottage in Quebec, working on our weirding book. More on that at a later date. The retreat was a smashing success, and I like to think you can hear our enthusiasm in what follows. The topic of our conversation was the cryptic conclusion of Rainer Maria Rilke's poem, Archaic Torso of Apollo. I'm referring to those famous closing lines, quote, for there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. The story goes that Rilke wrote this poem after a numinous encounter with a fragment of Greek statuary in the Louvre. Something about the broken statue, once a complete representation of the god of light, poetry, and music, made a deep impression on the young poet. The stone seemed more than a bit of matter. Even as a fragment, it emanated a powerful force, a force at once aesthetic and ethical, imaginal and moral. I see you, it whispered to him, and certain changes are in order. David Hume famously said you can't get an ought from an is. Pache Hume, I think there are times in everyone's life when art acquires a glow of religiosity that challenges this philosophical commonplace. For what is a great artwork if not an is that is also an ought, an actual that realizes a possible, a thing that presents as a being? According to the German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk, who made You Must Change Your Life the title of a marvelous book on religion, or anthropotechnics as he calls it, art is the zone where we moderns can hear the message we now fail to receive when, say, we look up at the night sky as our ancestors did. Cogently, he titled his chapter on Rilke's poem, The Command from the Stone. You must change your life, says art. Okay, you might think, but how? Well, if you're a fan of Weird Studies, the answer's simple. You join our Patreon, that's how. Every off week, Weird Studies patrons get to enjoy a bonus episode along with some original writing. And we now have a $9 tier that gives you access to monthly Zoom hangouts with Phil Ford and myself. Those have been lots of fun. Most importantly, though, all our patrons are part of a growing confraternity of people like yourself who are not afraid to dig the weird explore eldritch zones, and stand proud, if trembling, when inanimate things look back at them and speak in the imperative. 
If you're already a member, we thank you dearly. If you aren't, well, it's never too late to change your life. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So if you're uh, tuned in to Weird Studies for the first time, this is a very different thing, what's going on right now. Phil this and I are sitting... This is a very special episode yes, of it Weird is. Studies. We're gazing into each other's physical eyes, as opposed to some cheap representation of our respective faces on screens. Mm-hmm. We are sitting in the same room in my uh, my family cottage near Lake uh, St. Marie in Quebec. We've been here for, what, four days now, three days? Yeah. Going a total of five days in this place working on our book. So we decided to record an episode live which with one single mic. We can't edit this, so we'll try to behave ourselves. <laughs> and uh, so it's a very different thing. So if this is your first time listening to the show, you might want to check out one or two other episodes before or not. Yeah, Just know where, that this is different. we're not drunk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're also We're drinking. Drunk. Yeah. We're drinking. And it's only two in the afternoon. This is what we do on a writing retreat. Actually, it's, actually it's 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> Starting early. So, uh, no, it's yeah. it's uh, it's it's the first time we've had a chance to do this since what was it, twenty eighteen? The first year we were doing this when I came and visited you, and um, uh, recorded an episode, which for all of its shortcomings of sound and also the fact that I at least was rather drunk when we recorded it. I'm very I was, I was drunk too. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fond. I'm fond of that episode. Yeah, me too. It was called On Presence. Yep. Not that we went in with a theme. That's no. just what we decided to call it after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Because we were present. Yeah. And and we and our minds were persistently blown by that fact. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll try not to make oh, this show. Oh, my God. It's like you. <laughs> it's actually you. You're real. <laughs> um, yeah. No, today we have a theme going in. We have an idea of what we want to talk about. Um, uh, we've been deep, deep in... in in our uh, in our work on this book, so um, who knows what will percolate, what will come to the surface as this conversation progresses. But the idea is to mm-hmm. talk about. We can't edit that, you know. No, I know. <laughs> no, it's audio verite. Yeah, uh, but what we want to do is um, talk about a uh, a pithy little line from a, Will- a real K poem. Um, What's it called, the poem? Okay, no. Archaic Torso of Apollo. Yes. Yes. And we are using the translation by, is it Werner Hohmann? What's his name? The the, the translator of Slaughter Dykes. Oh. uh, Hold on. That's Wieland. Wieland Hohmann. Yes. So that's the translation we're using. I have another one on my computer by Stephen Mitchell, which... Is that the one on Poetry Foundation? Because yes, without my books, I am just scouring the internet for stuff. Well, you know, and this is a thing about doing this episode the way we're doing it. We're up in a cabin in the woods, um, have managed to avoid being murdered so far, which yeah. is good. Yeah, always. Um, but uh, we don't have our libraries. No. And uh, so, but, you know, I've got my computer, and so I'm looking at a PDF that I scanned of the first couple of chapters of. Peter Sloterdijk's You Must Change Your Life, the title of which comes from the sonnet Archaic Torso of Apollo by Rilke. And, yeah, it's like, 
my thought was at first like, oh, it's like the medium is the message. Like that, I forget which episode that was, but that's an earlier episode where we treated the um, probably McLuhan's best known utterance, the, the medium and the message, as a kind of koan of the modern age. Something that's very obviously pregnant with meaning. But of course, very interested to unpack that meaning. And it seemed to me that You Must Change Your Life presented as, uh, in Peter Sloterdijk's words, uh, as a command from the stone, like an object, uh, you know, a broken classical statue in a museum, an object that could confront you with the demand that you change your life. The very phrase, you must change your life, has a kind of autonomous power, and we can talk a little bit about that, uh, that weirdly replicates the conceit of the poem that even a mutilated and broken statue conveyed from our antiquity, head is gone, legs are gone, you just have this torso, and, uh, and yet somehow in it, there's this gleam from within that the, the eyes are still shining even though the head is gone. Um, there's, there's some kind of radiance from this object. And so in such a context, receiving a command, you know, an object like this could present you with a command. You yeah. must change your life. But by the same token, it seems to me that that very phrase, you must change your life, which comes in the end in the 14th line of this sonnet, is itself kind of like the broken torso of Apollo insofar as this has become uh, part of the folklore of people who went to liberal arts college. Like it's, right. uh, it's just, it's one of those things you, I'm, I'm sure there's a mug you can buy that says you must change your life yeah. on it. It's just T-shirt. one of yeah. yeah, exactly. It's one of those things like, uh, you know, like an Escher print or, or whatever, like just a, a bit of the furnishing. So it participates in the fragmentary nature of the subject matter of the poem in which it appears. It yeah, is exactly. It, yeah. Even, even on a mug, something of the weirdness of that context, that it is a, an object, a stone that is commanding you. I guess in a mug, it would be the command from the mug. Yeah, the command from the mug, the command from the t-shirt. <laughs> Makes it easier to understand. Command from the tote bag. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Mo- uh, maybe, you know, maybe mostly on that very last line, but also the the poem and, and perhaps some connected ideas. Although, yeah. Well, perhaps, like we always get into connected ideas. Yeah. As I've been telling you throughout the week, whenever this topic came up, I've I'm really interested to these days in the connections between ethics and aesthetics. It's something, of course, I've been thinking about for a long time, but really thinking of the imagination as being grounded in a kind of moral imperative. Um, There's something about the imagination and the creative imagination that generates such things as statues of Apollo or gods like Apollo, perhaps, if you are inclined to think that Apollo doesn't literally exist at the top of Mount Olympus, um, that there's something in that gesture, in that, that, in that act of imagining that is fundamentally ethical, that has to do not just with the way things are. In fact, the very, it seems to me like the very, the mere fact, the mere act of imagining some new thing in this world is to imagine a different world. And um, that imagination has to, it kind of orbits around this axis of the ought, what ought to be, what ought not to be, 
what should, what, which is a very difficult, uh, difficult thing to assimilate to a purely imminent frame sort of evolutionary idea of, of existence, I think, anyways. There's something inherently kind of transcendent or vertical about ought, right? Mm. Um, so, so I'm very happy we're talking about this. It's going to be fun. Should we read the poem? Yeah, we should. Yeah. Um, how about one of us do the octave, the first eight lines, and the other do... Yeah, let's the, do that. The, the final six lines. Uh, which, which bit do you want? Well... Both of us, it's sort of like who gets to be Mr. Black in, uh, do, do you remember uh, Tarantino movie, um, Reservoir Dogs? Yeah. They're all named, there's these guys getting together for a heist. They all have colors. Yeah, Mr. Brown, Mr. Pink, whatever. Yeah. And uh, they get in an argument about who, uh, about this, this guy's like, I don't want to be Mr. Pink. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, th I think that's right. And and then uh, the, the old, the old uh, criminal this sort of mastermind is like, no, it's got to be like this way, or otherwise, all the guys are going to sit around arguing about who gets to be Mr. Black. Right. <laughs> so, that naturally, we're going to sit around arguing about who's going to get to do the last six lines because that's the, the, the money line. So, well, you can do the money line. No, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do the. the I'm very happy eight. to be Mr. Pink. You get to be Mr. Black today, right. which is appropriate since you are the man in black. Right. We never knew his head and all the light that ripened in his fabled eyes. But his torso still glows like a gas lamp dimmed, in which his gaze, lit long ago, holds fast and shines. Otherwise the surge of the breast could not blind you, nor a smile run through the slight twist of the loins towards that center where procreation thrived. Otherwise this stone would stand deformed and curt under the shoulder's transparent plunge and not glisten just like wild beast's fur and not burst forth from its contours like a star. For there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. Mm. So what do we, what do we have here? What, one thing that Sloterdijk makes clear is that before being a statement about art, which he, I think he does say, well, he does end, end up saying this is, um, it's, a, it's a statement about a fragment of something, about a part, about something that is inherently imperfect in the sense that it's a part of something that was once complete. Right. It's the torso. The head's been lopped off. But what he's saying is that in its fragmentariness, this torso of a statue of Apollo is still complete, still perfect. Yeah, because you can still. First of all, he, the poet Rilke, gives it, restores it to its fullness by talking about it. it's still smiling, it's still seeing, it still has all the parts that you don't see. They're still there, inherent or imminent in the the, the fragment that we have. Um, so it, it's not just about. I don't. I, I agree with Slaughterdyke that he's not just talking about art, although he is because arts are types of things, and um, but he is first of all talking about things about how things speak to us objects speak yeah. to us and then art might become the privileged objects that speak to us most clearly perhaps um but uh i like that he's not writing about apollo the god or a complete statue of apollo a complete full representation but about a broken piece of an ancient god there's yeah. something so modern about that and reaching back into the past it's making this wonderful gesture that you often see in fantasy, which is like 
There are things that we've forgotten that we should remember, things we must restore, some things we must retrieve from the darkness of the past. And there's a little bit of that going on. Um, I just find it it's such a, a beautiful and mysterious and cryptic, almost koan-like poem. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Something that's interesting about Sluderdijk's commentary on this poem is that he is focusing on it as religion though in his particular way it, the, the way that he cultivates in this book you must change your life uh religion as anthropotechnics religion not as bodies of belief and creeds and, and uh, theologies but as programs of action and where his chapter on this is a pretty short chapter where it goes finally is actually reinterpreting that final command from the stone. You must change your life as trainer speak, like a motivational speech given by a coach at the halftime of a game where they're getting their asses kicked, um, which is kind of an interesting place to take it. But fundamentally throughout this, he's focusing on religion. But um, what's interesting is for a, poem about the broken statue of a god it's not the god that interests him it's the broken piece of stone yes the objectness the idea of religion imminent in things yes um there's a great line in here i want to find it um if one wished to transfer all the teachings of the papyrus religions, the parchment religions, the stylus and quill religions, the calligraphic and typographical, all order rules and sect programs, all instructions for meditation and doctrines of stages, and all training programs and diatologies into a single workshop where they would be summarized in a final act of editing, their utmost concentrate would express nothing other than what the poem poet sees emanating from the archaic torso of Apollo in a moment of translucidity. Yeah. In a sense, it, so this is the essence of what he calls religiosity. Yeah. It's this imperative that shines forth from being itself. Yeah. You must change your life. Yeah. What do you make of that? Make of what? In of particular? that idea. That, that all of... It's funny because he 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 doesn't um, he, he makes it clear that at one point in time you think back on the Middle Ages, people heard that message from nature. Uh, nature is such. You read a medieval bestiary. Every animal brings with it a moral message. Every animal symbolizes some virtue or vice, or um, and nature itself was a kind of as Foucault, I think, brilliantly lays it out in uh, the, the beginning of the order of things, nature itself was a kind of text, a kind of moral text. Right. Right. We've lost that because for all kinds of reasons, Slaughter Deck talks about the scientific penetration, uh, exploration, and ultimately um, uh, upending of nature, right, through technology. But nevertheless, in artifacts, in fragments, in individual things, we still hear the call that the medievals heard coming out of the cosmos as a whole, which is this, there's something about the being of things that, hmm, for reasons that I don't quite understand, although we, I have feelings and ideas, um, calls forth to us that there's an ought embedded in the is. I've often said this, like, you know, David Hume famously said, you can't get an ought from an is. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, you can't get morality from 
simple ontic being things are like cause and effect things happen you can't ever extrapolate some kind of ought from that so it's a great mystery as to where the moral imagination comes from but the ought is an is the ought is you know and the ought is somehow is a fact of life it's also part and what this poem is telling us is that the ought emanates naturally from things it's not something that we project into them the line that comes right before is there is no place that does not see you everything you think you're doing to the world seeing it perceiving it apprehending it um it's doing to you too and there's nothing that you're adding to the mix that wasn't somehow already there. That the mm -hmm. ought is already in the is. That there's mm -hmm. already a moral dimension to the world. This is my personal takeaway from what Slaughterdyke's getting at. Um, and I like that. I, I think it's true. I think it's true. I like the idea that the artist essentially reconfigures things so that we can see the ought inside them kind of shine forth more strongly there's something in irreducibly moral about art and about by extension about human existence i'm going to give you a shallow and a profound response to what you just said. sure and you can decide which one is correct um, no doubt the shallow one is correct <laughs> no i think you'll like my <laughs> profound response the shallow one is that what you're talking about is a kind of uh quietism that that serves entrenched power that right. there's a line from a chorus in one of Handel's oratorios, can't remember which one, maybe it's Messiah, but I'm not sure. Whatever is, is right. Yes. And I remember encountering that in school and uh, the teacher, the professor in the class being like, oh, well, you know, this is, this is uh, uh, an idea, a notion very favorable to kings and all forms of enfranchisement and a state and, uh, and yes. instituted power. It's also a complete negation of the conclusion of the poem. Indeed. <laughs> uh, which it would be like, you must not change yeah, your life. You must not change a thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's why it's shallow and, and wrong because, uh, you know, for, just for that reason. But yeah. I think, it, I, I don't know if it's profound, but at least it's deeper than that um, is say like, there is a certain, when, which actually this is getting closer to Zen, where like the world is exactly as it is. It couldn't be other than it is. In right. a certain sense, the the being of a thing is both its presence, what it is, uh, and also the fulfillment of what it should be. Right. However fucked up that thing might be that's as true for a lump of shit in the gutter as it is for you know the sistine chapel or mm -hmm. whatever um but to say so is uh obviously immediately entoils you in uh in in all kinds of um absurdities and contradictions and things that can't properly be argued so i'm just gonna stop right there <laughs> i'm gonna take another There's... sip of my beer I mean, Sloterdijk starts his chapter, uh, which he titles The Command from the Stone, with this exact thing that you just brought up. Um, the uh, where does art, where does this authority, this verticality that we, yes. he, that we sense in every imperative statement, there's an authority there. You must do this. Well, who, who says who? Um, he starts with that question. Yeah. And what he says is that... Um, there's something about the torso, but what Rilke discovers here, 
that disarms our knee-jerk resistance to claims of authority. The authority is not of the same type as the kinds that we rejected in, you know, the beginning of, during the Enlightenment, the type of authority that we decided was not uh, legitimate. Coercive, arbitrary authority of of various traditional sites. Exactly. Um, And if I can try to find the... I mean, he writes, uh, beginning with a poetic text seems apposite because, aside from the fact that the title of this book is taken from it, its assignment to the artistic field makes it less likely to provoke those anti-authoritarian reflexes which follow almost compulsively from any encounter with statements made dogmatically or from above. What does above mean anyway? In quotes, like an example of the kind of thought that jumps readily to our minds when we read, and I say we, you know, wised up moderns of yeah. of, of type of, the of people who read represent. Peter Sloterdijk. Yeah, yeah exactly. If you, <laughs> if you bought this book, you're already asking yeah, yeah. this question. You're already an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> we should put that in our book. Yeah, somewhere. Exactly. If you bought this book, you're already an asshole. I think the dedication page would be to the assholes <laughs> and my wife. Yeah, <laughs> and our wives. Yeah. Uh, what does he say? The aesthetic construct and nothing else has taught us to expose ourselves to a non-enslaving experience of rank differences. That's interesting. So you know, you got one thing you got to understand about this book. The book, you must change your life is that Sloterdijk is trying to establish an idea of verticality. That's like really important. Mm-hmm. And his whole thing in interpreting this poem of Rilke's is that that voice from the stone, the command from the stone, you must change your life, is a, it, it is verticality. Yeah. It has, it carries its authority, its weird power to suggest the whole of the poem, even printed on a mug or a t-shirt, um, that's me saying, not him. But like, it's weird. Power comes from the fact that it is a command from above. Yes. But this is interesting because I, I don't know. It's been a while since I've read Slaughter Day, but I feel that he wants to bring back an idea of verticality of the sort that we talk about a lot. An idea of there being some, you know, higher dimensions or higher beings, higher planes. You might think of it in a Neoplatonic way, an emanationist cosmology where, you know. Uh, you have a kind of unmanifest that manifests through progressively lower stations until you end up down here on earth. Um, Blah, blah, blah. Like it could be higher in that sense. But much of the time, I think, I think most of the time what he's trying to do, I don't know what I think about it. Is he, is he trying to get one over on us? He's sort of conflating a, a real transcendence with something, a, an imminent verticality. I think uh, he is. Yeah, yeah, where it's like it's like getting better at a at a sport. You well, know? that would be one application, but he would include uh, spiritual exercise and that, and all kinds of practices. But the thing about Slaughterdyke is the way I read him, and I'm not a Slaughterdyke expert. My take, my my sense is that he takes Nietzsche's clarion call very seriously. That nihilism has to be vanquished, but mm-hmm. the nihilism can only be vanquished by diving in, going to the end of it. Yeah, going through it, transcending it. So I think what he's trying to do is to erect a kind of verticality, uh, a vertical pole to hold the tent of the cosmos up yeah. from below. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a noble enterprise. Because, I, I agree. Because I, I wouldn't, I can't accept as a modern any verticality that simply declares itself coming from above 
and yet it has to be told to me by somebody here below. Like, right. you know, that yeah. won't work. So I, I think he's doing the right thing. And I know that Sloterdijk is a profound thinker. Um, so I, I hesitate to draw conclusions. But um, I, I think ultimately, um, I agree with you that I have a suspicion of any attempt to try to jam transcendence into an imminent frame without just simply at some point affirming transcendence for it. It's hard to know because yeah. you can always go, there's always a chicken or the egg thing or like, what's the, like, where does this begin? You know, you can mm -hmm. say like, it's really good for us to think in terms of transcendence, but then that doesn't explain how we began thinking in terms of transcendence to begin with. Yeah. It just seems like it's, a, it's like a hard problem, like in the same yeah. sense of consciousness. Like how emerge. do you get from here to there? Yeah, exactly. How do you Why would that ever have occurred to anyone? Asm. Yeah, so that's the that's the perennial problem of any eminentist philosophy. It's always that it it wants to get back to what it denies in new under new terms, but what it denies is simply inexplicable mm. on its own on its terms. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I think one one figure that I want to uh, from a, a slightly earlier part of this book that I want to bring in is the figure of the barbarian. Um, yeah, because like it's, that part. Because it's important uh, to understand that Sloterdijk is not only, I mean, like any thinker, is not only saying something, uh, he's not only affirming something, his idea of practice and anthropotechnics, etc., but also negating something. And what he negates is exactly that tendency to negate the vertical. Yes. That modern um, uh, suspicion of anything that seems not only to come from higher, but or to aspire to higher, but even to assert that there is a higher. Yeah. The, the suspicion of hierarchy, which seems yeah. to be extremely, like deeply embedded in the current, current epistem, I think. At a time when hierarchy could not be more institutionalized, unbreakable, and hegemonic what do you mean? in our lives. What do you mean? <laughs> it's absurd yeah. yeah but the other thing is that you know um i mean yeah i'll keep going with your thought I well I, I was going to read something this from yeah. page 12 of the same book fatally the term barbarian is the password that opens up the archives of the 20th century it refers to the despiser of achievement, the vandal, the status denier, the iconoclast, who refuses to acknowledge any ranking rules or hierarchy. Now, I, I will stop and say, um, certainly in the academic humanities, for as long as I have been in it, since the 90s, since I was in graduate school, um, a romanticization of the iconoclast, the status denier, the vandal, um, those who refuse to acknowledge rules and hierarchies, that has been universal. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, and also not just academia, but like also the reason why punk has had such a long afterlife, a kind of zombie afterlife shambling yeah. through the groves of academia. <laughs> Academics never tire of uh, talking about punk because, of course, punk, the whole ethos of punk basically is exactly what Sloterdijk is terming barbarism. Um, and so already... This is this is a, this is a strong cup of coffee yeah, for a lot stuff. for for any number of people who are listening to this episode. That's going to be people are going to be like, now wait a minute, just yeah. wait, just hold on there oh, we're a not, second. We're sunny just getting jam. started, you assholes. <laughs> yeah, just strap in. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to continue this passage. Whoever wishes to understand the 20th century must always keep the barbaric factor in view. 
Precisely in more recent modernity, it was and still is typical to allow an alliance between barbarism and success before a large audience, initially more in the form of insensitive imperialism, and today in the costumes of that invasive vulgarity which advances into virtually all areas through the vehicle of popular culture. Mm. And so, you know, he's thinking of the Eurovision Song Contest. Yes. You just know he's just like <laughs> sitting there joylessly in front of his TV, watching people dancing around him yeah. in yeah. simulacrum of, of, of traditional costume. Um, that, that the barbaric position in 20th century Europe was even considered the way forward among the purveyors of high culture for a time, extending to a messianism of uneducatedness. Donald Trump. Uh, indeed, the utopia of a new beginning on the clean slate of ignorance illustrates the extent of the civilatory crisis this continent has gone through in the last century and a half. That's a long ass sentence. I haven't even gotten to the end of it. Mm-hmm. I, I give up. I give yeah. up on that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> so you imagine that in German. <laughs> <laughs> no, this whole page is one sentence in the in the original, right? right. Uh, so anyway, so is there something for those like myself who, you know, I enjoy the vehicle of popular culture. I find much to say in favor of popular culture. What is he talking about that I can relate to? I think it is um, not. I, I think it's a mistake to try and say, oh, here's this zone of the culture in which barbarism is to be found in unusual concentrations. I no, think it's it is... much more widely distributed than popular culture. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. The in fact, in popular culture, you find lots of uh, verticality, I find. Indeed, I think you could argue that at least uh, if we're thinking in terms of Victoria Nelson's idea of the sub-zeitgeist. Yeah. We're adjusting the microphone here. Huh. Well, it's, 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 it's exciting. P, the folks at home get to hear us adjusting the microphone. This is how the sausage is made. <laughs> this is where the magic happens. <laughs> this, this is kind of magical. Yeah. This is a really nice uh, cabin. We say cabin in the woods. You, you, I know you're thinking of like the cabin in the Evil Dead or something. It's much nicer than the cabin in the I'd Evil I'd like Dead. to say that we're in a very, I was going to say the beginning is very rustic here. Uh, it's the surroundings are rustic. People are going to expect to hear an axe crashing yeah. through the door at exactly. any moment. You know? Hey, there's an old uh, reel-to-reel tape uh, tape recorder <laughs> let's here. Let's press this. <laughs> let's press the play button and see what happens. <laughs> um, so the yeah, sorry, you were yeah. I, remember I, I agree, saying. but uh, there's a lot of hierarchy and verticality in pop culture. I, I yes. am a, a stalwart supporter of pop culture. The problem is that. Uh, it's the bait and switch and the hypocrisy of our times. For example, we were talking just this morning about the actual existence of an aristocracy of sorts in the U.S., but yeah. it differs from all other aristocracies of the past in the sense that it denies its own existence as yeah. an aristocracy. And right. so it has all the privilege of aristocracy and zero duties. Yeah, no responsibilities No responsibilities to accompany that. So um, an argument in favor of maybe... Uh, uh, recognition of hierarchy because it, the problem with hierarchies is that they keep existing even if you hate them. Yes. You know, they don't fall into the, they, you know, and, uh, Philip K. Dick defines reality of, as that which does not disappear when you stop believing in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hierarchy is one of those things. <laughs> it's very you true. Know? You want sports, you want art, you want anything worth doing in life. There's going to be, there are going to be people who excel. This is just simply a fact. And there are going to be things that suck. It's just the fact of the matter. And um, 
our resistance to that, our, our feeling that we each have a right to be. Like one example of this is the suspicion in which the idea of genius is held. And we talked about this this week too. Yeah. We've like, basically I, talked about everything this week. Yeah. The idea that Wagner and Shakespeare or Emily Bronte or um, Emily Dickinson uh, are not geniuses is, is a, a stupid idea. Uh, it's a stupid it's idea. It's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> because where does it get you, first of all? Um, genius simply means um, achieving a form, getting in shape. And I love the way he ends that little chapter that we read. Yeah, shape so up. Shape. Getting in shape is the most platonic or neoplatonic statement ever. It's attained to the form. You know, we all know, you know, I'm not super in shape. I know what getting in shape would mean. I know I should do it. He's lying. He's fucking ripped. JF is <laughs> built like a brick shit house. Yeah. yeah. I've actually, this entire time, I've been like flexing for Phil in various <laughs> postures. Just a po- just, we're having a pose down here. <laughs> JF is winning. Yeah. Did you ever see that episode of... Um, uh, what's a Teen Titans? Yeah, yeah, your kids are too too old for you to have watched Teen Titans. Yeah, I've never seen it. Yeah, it's really funny. There's one episode where uh, one of the characters becomes He Man, but in this version he's called Him Guy, <laughs> <laughs> and he and he faces off with Skeletor, who shows up as Skeletor. But Skeletor is so hilarious because he's got the head of a skeleton, but he's super ripped. Like, you can see (laughs) how much the reps this guy must go through to look his best, but he's always got the skeleton face. (laughs) And so he's like, I'm as cut as you are, He-Man. And they start to, like, you know, do a pose off. It's so funny. Him him guy, not He-Man. One of the many things we've talked about in this week is the imaginal power of He-Man. We did. We had this, we've, yeah, we've talked about everything. We've had like 50 episodes worth of unmonetized <laughs> content since getting to this cabin. Uh, He-Man's a fantastic world. I just want to say that. Yeah. yeah. It's the Bob. It's the Bob? The haircut. The Bob. Oh. Yeah. But it's so much more. No, yes, I never I watched that show. Actually, um, I'm, I'm 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 pretending to be like a fan of He Man, but I'm not a fan of He Man. But I recognize there's something about He Man uh, just from watching the uses to which He Man has been put. Mm-hmm. The number of memes, some like genuinely funny memes. Um, I don't know. Just like you see a an art object. Okay, this is. I'm actually happy we're talking about He Man because. Slaughter Dyke grumpily telling us that what he means by barbarism concentrates, especially in popular culture. Well, okay, I remember being a kid in the 80s. I was old, I was too old for He Man. I was right in that zone for He Man. I freaking loved He Man. I remember the smell of He Man, the toy, not the. <laughs> not his loincloth. <laughs> you ever seen that meme of him? It's like he's. His hip is all shaved, and you can see all this like like really pale skin. And he says, "It was never a loincloth." <laughs> <laughs> There's something okay. I never watched that show, and yet I find He-Man memes really funny. Like yeah. I find Skeletor extremely funny. Yeah, same here. Skeletor is the best, um, and. It's clear, like, at the time, I remember thinking, like, this is such garbage. And you knew at the time, like, Mattel conjured this series into existence to sell a toy. The raison d'etre 
of He-Man the show was He-Man the action figure. Yeah. And yet, here we are decades later, and He-Man just keeps generating dreams. He-Man is making us dream still. Yes. More now than in the 80s. Uh, well, he made me dream quite a bit in the '80s, a lot more than I. He makes me dream now. <laughs> he is quite dreamy, but like, and well, Shira too. By the way, I want to include Shira. In well, that. Speaking of, you know, dreams, kind of like more metaphorically. I don't want to know about know. what your He-Man dreams were like. No, no, no. But I, I, at the time, He-Man to me was a call to change my life. He well, showed me really? what a person could be. To me, he was the embodiment of heroism and. And what I love about 80s toys in general, we were talking about that just yesterday, I think, is the respect with which, I mean, I know Mattel just wanted to put out a toy, but they hired people who gave a shit. Yeah. They designed that world. That was a fantasy, science fantasy world that was inspired by Mobius and Heavy Metal Magazine and the 70s. It was a distillation of some of the greatest freaking Pulp Fiction ever. And they got put- Got D&D shit all up yeah, in there. It's got cars and like- uh, you know, tigers you can ride. It's got all kinds of shit. It's you it's, think about the awesomeness of like a seventies panel van with a Frank Franzetta yeah. air painting airbrushed on the side. Yes, it's that for kids. Yeah, <laughs> but return, but with the awesomeness of that, just it's in a more age appropriate form. But it yeah. like bootlegs all of that awesomeness of like seventies decorated vans. What what I love about the toys of that era is that maybe the toys, some toys, I'm sure some toys still do this. It's such a beautiful thing to give children because they're saying, okay, here's a, here are some, look at these images, look at these icons, play with them, imagine, be in this world, travel. And it's like, they're not training us to be good citizens, these, these, uh, these figures, they're not teaching us about how to, you know, we should do better in school. They are simply tools for dreaming, tools for exploring the imaginal. Um, and I, I respect that. I think that's what toys, well, it's one thing toys can do. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. Actually, hey, call back to the last time we did this, had a show with one another across the table, just the two of us, not counting the stuff we did, uh, the live shows we did last summer. Mm -hmm. um, that was where we first talked about the experience of looking into the Christmas tree and mm. finding a little world there. Yes, a zone. I think we may be talking about the same sort of thing and talking about these toys that shine forth. Yes. Like the 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 smile of the of the torso of Apollo. Yeah. So, or that the, the eye is long gone, but still yeah. somehow the radiance shines forth. It's like that shining forth. Yes. That shining forth of that poem in a He-Man action figure. And I'm not even kidding. Like, that's another thing we talked about this week is like, when we were kids, the bowel-loosening excitement of the Eaton's catalog or the Sears catalog coming to your house in, was it October or November? It was yeah. probably it was November. Probably earlier than it should have. But yeah. yeah. No, but like, right after Halloween. The Chris, Yeah, right. The Christmas season catalog. And you would spend the next several weeks... Uh, pouring over the pictures and descriptions of the toys contained therein with like, like, like the, it was the Talmud or something. Like yeah. you were just like, <laughs> yeah. like it was a, 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 a project of advanced scriptural exegesis. Yeah. And the circling things. And 
And there is a kind of, and I don't know, it must have happened to a lot of people that actually that the anticipation is better than its fulfillment, that the actual toy might not actually have the thing that's shining forth from the picture in the catalog. Well, now we're coming back to the, to the point, I think, because what are you experiencing when you look at those pictures of toys? You're dreaming the worlds they evoke. You're, 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 and as a child, you're, you're porous. You're just like, your, your psychic membrane is not formed yet. And so as we, as we, you know, when you look into the Christmas tree and see that little world inside the Christmas tree, and that requires one to know how to decorate a Christmas tree. See, hierarchy. Some people know how to decorate Christmas trees and some don't. You got to put ornaments in the tree, not just on the surface. And lights. And lights. You, you got to bury you those gotta in there. The, you got to yeah. have the, the light strand. Like if you're looking at the tree in cross-section, it has to not only go round and round, but zigzag in Inside. and out of the tree. Yes. So that the interior can be illuminated because that's where Christmas lives, man. Yes, And exactly. you look in there and as a child, you're both looking at it and you're in it. This is in my zones chapter. You know, my yeah. first experience of that was the little um, gas fire under the water heater in our house, which transported me into another world every time I looked at it. Uh, the Inside the Christmas tree, you do the same. You're looking at the Eaton's catalog. You're seeing the G.I. Joe section. Like, oh, fuck, yeah. It's like, <laughs> or you turn, it's like oh, the He-Man section or the Star Wars section. Yeah. And suddenly you're in that universe. You're, you're, the act of perception is, a, is a, a kind of teleportation. And, of course, when you get the toy... It's a little bit harder um, because it's not harder. Um, it's different. It depends it, on the toy. Yeah, it depends on the toy. Yeah. The point is that in until you get the toy, in that anticipation for of the toy, you're living in the ought, in what ought to be, what could be, the possible. Mm-hmm. The yeah. Possibilities yeah, yeah, that, that shine forth from these objects. Oh, when I was visiting my mom, I found an old photo album that I had kept as a kid because I had a Polaroid camera when I was a kid. Polaroids mm. are awesome. It's yeah. My favorite kind of photography is Polaroid photography. And um, I had taken pictures of things that were important in my world when I had that camera. I was about seven, maybe. Right. And um, you know how in the introduction that I did for the Course of the Heart episode where I'm talking about zones? Yeah. Uh, where I'm talking about like, you know, a zone could be a photograph where like I see a whole new world shimmering on the edge of manifestation and you see a picture of a cloister. Yeah. And we're both right in a way. Well, I have a concrete example of that, which is one photo in particular that really kind of got my attention. A faded old photo of this kind of um, King Kong plastic toy positioned on top of a pair of bongos and i had seen i remember seeing the remake king kong in the 1970s and it made a deep impression on me i suspect it wasn't a very good film i'm sure not. i never saw that one i saw the 1985 one when i was seven that, that one was they have his heart they give him a heart transplant oh okay I, I vaguely remember this yeah i think they give him a heart transplant but anyways go on well, anyway, so King Kong loomed large in my imagination for yeah. a time in the 70s. And uh, um, so I had this King Kong. It's just a cheap plastic toy. It was hollow. Uh, so it was quite lightweight, uh, molded plastic that was hinged. And you could easily dismember it. I remember you could pull the arms and legs out and it was just like a little knob. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or just like a, sock, uh, uh, like a socket joint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
it was a socket joint, uh, but you could then pop it back in because it was very bendy, cheap plastic. Um, and, uh, you know, you could position, rotate the arms upwards. So, and imagine he's going, um, you can't see me folks at home doing my King Kong pose, but it's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, JF turned white to the roots of his hair. Stop (laughs) Stop talking about it. Just keep going. (laughs) Um, so King Kong sitting on bongos and I'm sure I was thinking something like, oh, well, you know, like King Kong on the. Empire State Building, the climactic scene, um, and I was putting on bongos. But, like, the thing is, I remember the just numinous power of that toy. And when I took a picture of it, it was a picture of his own. Yes. I was taking a picture of his own. Like, I, as a child, could feel that numinous power in the thing. Yeah. The place you're creating. And, yeah, and the place I was creating, like, putting the toy on the bongos just like that okay now it's a scene it's a yeah. now it's a zone yeah and i took a picture of it and you look at it and you, you can imagine like a parent coming across it and being very amused yeah and being like oh how cute he's taking pictures of his toys which is true that's what i was doing but no i was taking picture of a zone and even now as an adult looking at it i can still kind of feel i can get a little bit of that emotion back yeah and it's completely incommensurate with with um uh our commonplace way of understanding the world where objects are just objects. And this is sort of like leading us back to, well, maybe the the only difference between that Polaroid uh, and a great work of art is that a great artist is able to so configure the work that even someone who has no idea where the work came from, what initially inspired it can still feel the zone in it. Mm -hmm. I strongly believe that. I mean, um, Think of a a really evocative photo. My favorite photo of all time, um, aside from Shannon Targart's wonderful uh, seance photos, is the famous photo of the Munich hostage takeover. Oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so it's basically all you're seeing, the the frame is just completely filled, saturated with brutalist architecture, angles. You're not Mm -hmm. seeing the whole building. You're just seeing a part of a building, a balcony of sorts, and you're seeing one terrorist look down from the balcony, and he's wearing a mask. Right. And it's black and white. And that photo, to me, evokes the entire, the zone that is the Cold War somehow, or something mm-hmm. of that era. I, I don't know how to... That era ways. of, like, proxy proxy wars with of yeah. the Cold War superpowers fucking with various nations and the and the knock-on political effects of that, the, the currents of violent political action terrorism in the 70s yeah uh you know adjacent to like you know red rudy and and like the and like you know left wing uh mm-hmm. countercultural extremism and on both sides of the atlantic the weatherman shit like that uh all of that somehow conjured in that feeling and that photo has this feeling of movement to me yeah it's a film it's a, yeah you yeah. could unpack a whole film just from that still image. To distill it even more, I would say that what that photo, the zone, the world it evokes, which is a world that people, you can step into. You can find yourself in that world. It's a world of what Camus called the crime of logic, which is basically the criminal act that is done in the name of a purely logical deduction. Uh, for example, the final solution, Auschwitz. Well, uh, we can't. Uh, we can't have these people just live. So we have to just eliminate them. It's not personal. 
that type of the think of the the prison compound. There are many of these existing right now, you know, Guantanamo Bay. I don't know what's going actually. I don't think that still exists, but uh, various prison compounds in the world, prison compounds whose existence we completely ignore, where there are people down there. Or whose screaming. existence we're not even aware of. Yeah. Yeah. I'm using the word ignore in the French sense, which means not not aware of too. Uh, okay. I do that sometimes, sorry. Uh, whose existence we're not aware of at all, where there are people down there who are screaming for mercy, screaming for freedom, and not even the guards hear their screams as anything more than the grunts of wild animals. Mm -hmm. They simply are completely dehumanized. That's what Camus meant by the crime of logic. Mm -hmm. He saw it at work in Hegel's philosophy, at least in one iteration of it, one interpretation of it. And he saw it through you know, the application of Marxism and all kinds of different ways and fascism. And it's basically the stone cold dehumanized glare of the beast um, as it manifests in history. And uh, the, I find that that photo captures that. In a sense, it's kind of a pure evil. It's an evil that's not a crime of passion. Camus very, these are the first pages of The, the Rebel, really good book. I, I, I love that book. Uh, and the, he opens with this dichotomy of the crime of passion and the crime of logic. The crime of passion, it knows it's, it's, it's born of passion. It's born of weakness. It's born of frailty. It's born, it's tragic. The crime of logic is, for, for Camus, absolutely unpardonable because it is a denial of passion. Uh, and, and it the, radiates not weakness, but barbaric strength. Exactly. Again, it's a total denial of the vertical. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's not personal. You're just, we just can't tolerate your existence. Right. I'm sorry. Please, I'm sorry. My hands are tied. Si please sit still. Yeah. <laughs> this uh, almost, bureauc almost bureaucratic voice. Perfectly bureaucratic voice. Kafka nailed it, you know, with uh, the trial. Yeah. Um, the penal colony, which is a fantastic story. Um, yeah. It, 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 it flourishes in the mid-20th century. I think it's still at work in our world today, except today it has found, you know, the Huxleyan secret of donning, uh, you know, rainbow hues in order to um, look friendly, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, but it's still around. It's just not gray brutalist masked terrorists anymore. <laughs> the sinister evil of casual Friday.
There's a line in here I'm looking for. Hold on for a second. The ability to perform the inner gesture with which one makes space for this improbability inside oneself, in other words, this ability to reverse the perspective from, you know, a subject looking at an object to being seen by an object. So now he's talking about that line, the penultimate line of the, yeah, which there is, is uh, there is no place that does not see you. Right. So in other words, the torso is also looking at you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, in effect, that's what having a talent for religion is. Yeah. Um, this, the, uh, the ability to do that, quote, uh, most probably consists precisely in the talent that Max Weber denied having. This talent is religiosity, understood as an innate disposition and a talent that can be developed, making it comparable to musicality. So in other words, it's a thing you can practice. Mm -hmm. One can practice it, just as one practices melodic passages or syntactic patterns. In this sense, religiosity is congruent with a certain grammatical promiscuity. Where it operates, it excuse me, where it operates, objects elastically exchange places with subjects. Therefore, if I accept that there are, on the shimmering surface of the mutilated stone, numerous places that amount to eyes and see me, I am performing an operation with a micro-religious quality, in which, once understood, one will recognize at all levels of macro-religiously developed systems as the primary module of a pious interaction. I love that. It's good. In the position where the object usually appears, never looking back because it's an object, I now recognize a subject with the ability to look and return gazes. Recognize, by the way, is in quotes. So um, he's maintaining a somewhat heuristic thing. The idea of, I think, suggesting perhaps um, it's a heuristic, a fake it till you make it kind of deal. That it's like, it's not that objects naturally have this faculty of looking at you and it's just obvious to anybody just you know just think about it like no you have to practice it you have to get it's something you could get good at yeah um i now recognize a subject with the ability to look and return gazes that would be the outcome of your practice thus as a hypothetical believer i accept the insinuation of a subject that dwells inside the respective place and wait to see what this pliable development will make of me and he says in uh, parentheses we note Even the deepest or most virtuosic piety cannot achieve more than habituated insinuations. A slightly difficult phrase, which when I read it, I was like, oh, fuck you. Because I thought it was um, a kind of a statement of like, that's all religion is, is is, um, a kind of make-believe. But actually reading it again and more carefully, like, no, that's what... The deepest, that is the deepest religious sentiment. Religion conceived not as a figure of discourse, an item of empty chatter, but uh, a signified to go along with the signifier, something mm-hmm. real that I do believe Slaughterdyke wants to do proper justice to. He's yeah. saying that to do justice to that thing, what you are doing is you are, um, you cannot do better than to go through the world and see it as, uh, a plurality of vows. Yes, exactly. And then we're back to the I vow. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, my, my personal insistence on realism is not, uh, is just entirely predicated on the, I think the importance of this exact thing of knowing that the objects you encounter and the, the creatures you encounter have their own self-existence 
and are therefore addressable as thou's, just as you are, you know. Um, I love that what he's doing there is that he's founding all religiosity. So the macro religiosity of the established traditions yeah. on a kind of micro religiosity, which am amounts to a kind of animism, right? Of, uh, of uh, granting the thing before you, despite its inability to articulate its emotions and thoughts like you have, like the, the privilege you have of having like a mouth and a body, of giving it the same rights to having a, a, a kind of personhood that mm -hmm. you give yourself yeah. and that you give those other human beings. Um, and to... to to see to to do like so so you'd have a kind of like uh basic animism and this puts him in line with like even freud who would say that we all start off as animists right uh we're more mistaken in doing that but he's saying that we need to cultivate that type of uh um that capacity and re restore it in order to and ultimately his goal is again vanquishing nihilism in the sense that we have to recover a sense of um perfect of of self-perfection right of of getting better at things of improving our lot because i think that what he detects in the barbarism that he talks about in the introduction is a kind of like ambient apathy that's going to ultimately do us in like mm -hmm. an inability to move to take action um yeah and yeah. he wants and he is the voice of the coach that he invokes at the end of this chapter yeah saying come on get in shape pull yeah. up your socks yeah get in the you know Get yeah. in the motherfucking ring. Yeah, because it'd be easy to go, okay, well, the torso's saying you must change your life. Well, how should I change it? And then... Does the, the torso, torso have anything to say about that? Yeah. Like, should, what should I... Should I convert to Islam? Should I, you know, become a bodybuilder? What should I... I don't know how to change. Uh, and then uh, the torso would reply, well, you know. You know what I mean. You know <laughs> what I need to do. I don't need to tell you that, do I? Because you know what you need to do. This is what having a moral instinct is. We all know where we fail. And it's so easy. You to, certainly know it once you fucked up. You yeah. might try and shove that awareness away and come up with all kinds of reasons why you couldn't have acted otherwise or you were in the right and so on. Yeah. But because I tend to find that people on some level, when you do something shitty to somebody else, you know it. Yeah. On some level, you know it. Yeah. If only you know it indirectly by the amount of energy you're putting into not knowing it. <laughs> I think so. I think that, uh, as you know, as a moral realist, I think so. I think that we just know this shit, just like we know basic arithmetic. Um, and we all know what it means to, to change our lives, to make our lives what it, they, could, they could be, to make our lives what they sh should perhaps be. Um, and to see art as, at its, at its essence, repeating that command to us, daring us to become. I find that very beautiful, you know? Yeah, I yeah. do too. It's, I'm, I, I was just imagining like a hypothetical, like um, imagine you wake up in the middle of the night and you see... A ghost. You should tell That's that. happened to me. Yeah, you should tell a story because you told me that story earlier this week and I never heard it before. Yeah. So and those of you who you think tell I'm the, full of tell shit. Tell the people at home about this while I get another beer. Right, okay. So everyone, you, you, some of you might already think I'm full of shit and making all this shit up. But one time I was um, on a theater tour. I won't bore you with the details, but I was a technical director for a touring company. And my, uh, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, was... Uh, 
was with us, uh, was with me. And so we stopped at a small boutique hotel um, uh, that was basically that was <laughs> located inside an old building in, in old Quebec City. So if any of you have been to Quebec City, it is as close to a medieval city as you'll find in North America. Beautiful place. And, um, with the exception of Phoenix, Arizona. With the exception of Phoenix, yeah. And so we were in this old hotel, and that night there were several groups of us, right? We were like, I was with my girlfriend in our room, and there were a bunch of other people in other rooms, and everyone experienced some kind of haunting-like phenomenon that night. Somebody's, they were locked into their room, their doorknob was freezing cold. Uh, what happened to us was, was, was the following. I woke up, and actually, when we first came into the room, there was a creepy picture of a little girl, like a painting, a portrait of a little girl on the wall. And I found it really disconcerting. So I took it off the wall and turned it around. I didn't, I didn't enjoy its presence. Speaking of things, looking back. Uh, and then, uh, it's like that picture in Firewalk with me. I think this would look nice on your oh, wall. That is the most horrific it's, scene. You know, you can buy that picture framed exactly the way it looks in the movie, like on Etsy, there's somebody yeah, I'm who makes sure. those. Yeah. I've, I've thought about getting one for you. Yeah. <laughs> I would hang it. Oh man. Um, so the, um, so that night I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a light in the room and I looked in the corner right where that picture had been. And standing there in the corner of the room was a man in a, like a tuxedo, uh, looking at with glasses, looking at me. Um, and the light, I, I hesitate to say that the light emanated from him, but it kind of did. Uh, and I looked at him for a few seconds. I was like, what the fuck? So, and then suddenly it just kind of, I just kind of clued Did his torso on. glow like a gas lamp dimmed? Would you say? I would say so. <laughs> yeah. I sat up and woke Leslie and she just saw the very tail end of the apparition, just a bit of light. And, um... So, yeah. So say you say that's it. That's my story. So you were saying. Yeah. So imagine that that apparition shows up gleaming with, from within with fabled light. Yeah. And says no context. You must change your life and then yeah. disappeared. Would you take that as an invitation to what is higher or a frighten, frightening reminder of whatever it most plagues your conscience do you see what i'm saying yeah do you take it positively or negatively because you must change your life could easily be taken as you're a fuck up yeah but but i yeah. but and my and the thing i want to intervene is against that as an exclusive interpretation there might be a little bit of that because I don't think that's a good reading of it. I mean, you must change your life is basically you. It means you can change your life. You can yeah. get better. It's not like um, if the torso said, I know what you did. <laughs> that would be shitty. Um, uh, or you're, you but can't point, change My point is, I think yeah. a lot of people would experience it exactly that way. Yes. In this kind of, uh, the reason I use the figure of the that's ghost true. is like something like, what the fuck? Like completely out of nowhere, un unhallowed, unexpected. Um and this is getting back to the people to whom Sloterdijk is addressing himself, you know, uh, vertical, verticality denying moderns. Well, lest, lest we uh, be too harsh about verticality denying moderns, I um, have to remember that 
it sucks to be a verticality denying modern. Yeah. You were always on the hook. You were always, you were responsible for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some, this is something that I think Kerouac wrote in his journals in the 40s. He's like, everybody's so guilty. Everybody's yeah. so furtive. He was like thinking about how, um, I don't know, like basically he, that was at a point where he wasn't a beat yet. He was trying to figure himself out and figure out his poetics and what his art could do in this world. Mm-hmm. And he and the world that he saw was one of people, as he said, like furtive and guilty. Yeah. And there's this kind of furtive guiltiness where anybody talking about verticality is going to be an asshole because it's reminding you of your own guilt, a, a unexpungible guilt that's like an M. Fortas wound that cannot close. The only thing, and the only th- and as in that, now that I'm thinking of it, as in that legend, the only thing that will heal it is the is the weapon that caused it. Yeah. Yeah. And the verticality. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, Zizek has this wonderful little routine he does with Dostoevsky. You know, Dostoevsky famously said, "When God is dead, all is permitted." And he's like, "Well, now that we've killed God, and it's been more than a hundred years, we know that the truth is that when God is dead, everything is prohibited. Guilt metastasizes, and morality becomes um, just runs rampant. Where is it going to come from? If it doesn't come from above, it's going to." It's going to come from you, but yeah. you can't be trusted. So we need to set up a committee to keep an eye on you. But then who's <laughs> going to trust the committee? We need an, yeah. a, a meta committee. Yeah. Uh, the, an ombudsman. And, and then uh, we need the committee on committees, yeah. which we actually have in the American Musicological Society. I always think it's really The committee funny. on committees? It has a committee on when committees. When I was in high school, as a joke, my stepbrother and I created the, the committees club. You know, you could create clubs. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what and, it is. And all we did was in the picture, in the yearbook, because you had all the clubs and the picture of our the committee's club was just a bunch of, like, headbangers and hippies. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what the AMS Committee on Committees is. Uh, the um, Club des Comités, it was called. That's funny. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's this, uh, and, and, and this is something I want to emphasize because I think there's a really important thing in the command from the stone. What's going? One thing that's really important to me, just aesthetically, when I read this, actually, while I was like doing like some very <laughs> brief and ineffective prep for for a conversation, I was just in the in my room. Um, this made me think of a Rush song that I haven't listened to in a while. One little victory. I think I heard you listening to it. Yeah, it's were you a, listening to it? Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah I Listen heard to, that. Just on my phone because it's the only way I can listen yeah. to anything here. But like, and the lyrics are really good, actually. And it really, it's the the idea. It's like um, what this poem is asking of you is to contemplate the possibility of victory. Yeah. Why? Why would you change your life? What would the point be? What's wrong with my life? I have a pretty comfortable life. But do you want victory? Yeah. You were made for greater things. It's, a, it's an affirmation of the person. Of, you know. Powerful affirmation. And so like, and the problem is that all anybody can hear is thou shalt nots. Yeah. And, 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 and the voice of the stone sounds like it's, instead of, you know, the voice from the stone is saying, you must change your life. But what we hear is, you're a shitty person. The context, and that is yeah. not what the stone is saying. That's not what the stone is saying, but 
it's how it will sound to someone who has an aversion to the imperative voice, you know, because um, so it's interesting to note, probably in Slaughter, I gets into this, that um, Rilke wrote this poem while he was in the employ of uh, Auguste Rodin, the great uh, sculptor. I mean, a sculptor of such skill that it is, it's kind of mind-blowing. In a way, I think I don't know much about sculpture. But I remember Rodin being a kid there. and seeing a road down for the first time and yeah. being fucking blown away. Oh, yeah. it's, it's insane. I didn't know shit about art, but I was like, whoa. How can you make that stone thing? do that? Yeah, yeah. So, and Rodin was a work workaholic. He was completely dedicated to to his art, completely determined to make, to, to, to make this ancient medium do things it had never done before uh, even though everything seemed to have been done and this is the early 20th century it's like it feels like it's it's on its last legs of this medium and yet he's pushing it to new heights in, all, in almost Atlant, Atla, atlas-like way um promethean way and um and there was Rilke watching this and blown away by 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 Rodin he was Rodin's secretary and uh and he could have he could have said, "I will never amount to anything. I will never look. I can't do what this guy does. Uh, he excels. Um, his genes are just right for it. Whatever he mm -hmm. would have said that at the time, but you know he was you know he he was brought up in the right place. He was he can, born for this shit. He was born for this, and and yet, what does Rilke do with that experience? Rilke was a small, introverted, sickly little guy." Um, and it's interesting also, another thing Sloterdijk explores is the fact that he's talking about an athletic body, right? Yeah. Apollo's athletic, perfect Grecian, you know, form. Um, and instead of seeing, instead of falling into what Spinoza called the sad passions, or in Nietzsche it was the reactive, where you're simply reacting and not anymore taking action, doing something yeah. in the world. He decided to transmute his, his humility into something an affirmative act of creating. And he ends up writing some of the greatest poetry. Um, this idea of reactive and, and active, right? This is the key to Nietzsche's, to Deleuze's interpretation of Nietzsche, is that what Nietzsche is talking about ultimately all the time is the active passions. That's what you're talking about, I think. Do you want victory? It's about, yeah, um, you're imperfect. You didn't do everything right. You could be better. You could hear all that in a reactive way and go, oh, well, I'm worthless. Or you can say, you're saying that tells me that I can excel, that I can achieve victory and to do it. You know, there's something beautiful about that. And it seems like, you know, we, we're at the uh, what Nietzsche called the last men stage right now. You know, when he, mm -hmm. his writings on the last men uh, in Zarathustra, where he's like, you know, a little bit, a little bit of medicine for the morning, a little bit of medicine for the night to sleep well, and then a little bit of medicine to die peacefully at the end. You know, that's like the stage we're at. Yeah. It's like self-medicating, self-maintain maintenance, um, being you're okay just the way you are. It's like the people yeah. in that movie Wally. -E. Yeah. Did you ever see that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So like those, those are the last men. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, just be entertained. You know. Mm -hmm. Uh, like during COVID, they somehow convinced us that staying at home and playing, you know, play the, my PlayStation or surfing the net was a heroic act, which I guess in a sense it was because we weren't spreading the virus. But it should never feel heroic to do nothing and to do what you're told. 
Well, and you know, some people did do heroic things in in um, absolutely in in quarantine. Um, they learned to bake bread. It was a heroic yeah, act, right? They started reading books. Heroic act. Yeah, they started playing Dungeons and Dragons. Like, heroic act. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, to see in one this... little victory. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm feeling all inspired here. <laughs> you know, the uh, something you said a while ago that I've been meaning to get back to, um, and I forget, I now forget what it was, but I remember thinking like, ooh, that reminds me of my long viewing exercise. I want to talk about that. So if we're talking about practice, which is, you know, keep in mind, Sloterdijk is bringing up this poem in the context of a treatise on practice. Uh, we might reasonably ask, well, what practice is being enjoined of us here? And we, uh, and Sloterdijk is careful to point out that, you know, the practice could be sort of anything, but where he ends up is using athletic practice as a figure for practice as such. Um, it's worth reading the last paragraph just because it's a, it's a stirring passage. Give up your attachment to comfortable ways of living Show yourself in the gymnasium. Prove that you are not indifferent to the difference between perfect and imperfect. Demonstrate to us that achievement, excellence, arete, virtu, has not remained a foreign word to you. Admit that you have motives for new endeavors. Above all, only grant the suspicion that sport is a pastime for the most stupid, as much space as it deserves. Do not misuse it as a pretext to drift further into your customary state of self-neglect. Distrust the Philistine in yourself who thinks you are just fine as you are. Hear the voice from the stone. Do not resist the call to get in shape. Seize the chance to train with a god. Yeah! <laughs> so good. But that's actually not where I was going with that. Yeah. Although that, uh, you know, I, I have a, a weakness for a good inspirational speech, and that's not a bad one. That's a good one. Yeah. It's being a good coach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Put me in, coach. <laughs> I can do this. Coach. I can do this. Um, so one question, though, is, uh, you know, one question is, is there a practice of seeing the subject in the object? Mm. You know, so that you can, yeah. And he talks about this as the religious move, yeah. something that exists sort of fractally, like on all levels, like in the micro-religious, like in just walking to my mailbox in the morning, I might perform that. I might see the sun coming up above the sky instead of just thinking like, and so this earth begins yet another rotation. rotation. <laughs> <laughs> that you think like, ah, the God the God is present to me. Yeah, Helios. You know, is, he, Helios yeah. is beginning his journey across the sky in his yeah. chariot. Um uh you could you could you could make that scene. Um and you can okay, so one thing you can do is apply this to the viewing of art. And that's basically an entire chapter in the book that we're uh, working on that we that, that is in fact the reason that we have been spending all this time up here in Quebec in this, uh, in this rustic cabin, evading ax murderers that stroll through these woods. Mm -hmm. um, and about a decade ago, I was teaching a kind of experimental course called Practice. In fact, I assigned passages from this book, and we talked in that class about this poem, and it was awesome. And 
one of the things I was really interested in, as I've brought up a bunch of times in the show, is what are called event scores or word scores. So the most famous one, the original one, really, is John Cage's 4 minutes and 33 seconds, which instructs a performer to remain silent for 4.33. Um, and that's the piece. And actually, Cage originally notated it carefully using conventional musical notation with staff, like staff notation, then realized that he could simply write tacit. And that would do the same job. Right. And this is the idea of like, oh, so like you actually don't need musical notation. You can write words to orchestrate an action, musical or otherwise. Um, and in fact, the act of word scoring makes you start thinking of like all kinds of actions as a kind of music, which is sort of a, a, a neat affordance of this particular art form. I was fascinated by this kind of art form and decided to write a word score of my own called long viewing and that is, and it's a word score aimed very particularly at cultivating this kind of um micro religious capacity which as i say fractally present both in that journey to the mailbox and also in the vast hierarchies of like the catholic church or whatever um micro and macro so long viewing, I'm going to read my long viewing thing. Um, this is an event score I wrote for a class I taught about a decade ago. Performing it turned out to be an unexpectedly powerful experience for myself and many of my students. You might find yourself awash in unpredictable feelings, so only engage in this exercise if you are willing to assume that risk. It is also possible that you will find it a boring waste of time, and likewise, only do it if you are willing to assume that risk. There's a book by Seymour Ginsburg called Gurdjieff Unveiled, an overview and introduction to the teaching that contains many exercises that, like this one, are aimed at intervening at levels deeper than mere thought. And before each exercise, the author demands that readers consider whether they have truly chosen to perform it. I believe this is entirely appropriate for exercises of this kind, so I reproduce Ginsburg for Ginsburg's formula here. It's a kind of magic, and you know, don't fuck around with that shit. Like you have to consent to what you're doing, right? Absolutely. If you accept what is suggested, accept it freely. Choose to do it not because it is suggested, but because you have decided of your own free will and accord to do this experiment. You are quite free to accept or refuse. If you have accepted to do this experiment, dot, 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 and here's my score. Go to an art museum, find an artwork that feels alive to you, and look at it for between half hour and an hour. Perform a reverence to it before leaving. And I have a whole bunch of notes explaining what I mean, an artwork that feels alive to you. How do you decide what an artwork is that feels alive? Um, how do you measure the time, avoid the suspicious glares of museum guards? Uh, what a reverence means to me, it means uh, performing a little bow and gasho because that's what I'm used to in Zen Buddhism. Um, I will omit all of that comment there, but the reason I emphasize so much, like choose to do this, don't just do this because it's like a class exercise or something, um, is because it's unexpectedly powerful. When I, I know. when I first did it in this class, I just thought I was arranging a nice, um, I don't know, what do you call it? Like a extracurricular like a, yeah, exercise. A nice yeah. little contemplative engagement with art. Maybe you get some, you know, like, oh yeah, I really, you know, 
feel like I understand that art better, whatever. But what I was not expecting was that people would emerge from the exercise shaken as if from an encounter with a god, which is basically what happened. For it's what happened to me, yeah, when I did it. Yeah. And so I do. I, I put that kind of almost disclaimer just to sort of say this is actually a really powerful exercise. It's a really powerful exercise, and it's a practice because. What I found, including people who never don't think about this shit. And this was a decade before weird studies anyway. And, you know, like, uh, there's no vocabulary for it. Without me telling anybody, like, oh, you're going to have, like, a heavy experience. All these different people, many of them very, I mean, musicians are practical people. Yeah. And music school students are not given to flights of metaphysical fancy for the most part. Um, how many of them were just like, that shook me. Yeah. And th in other words, it's not just that we're like gaslighting ourselves into believing that a broken stone torso of an ancient statue still shines forth with the radiance of its eyes. And the, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not fanciful to imagine a stone commanding you to change your life. Um, that there is, I don't even know what to call it, an intelligence, a sentience. Yeah. A soul yeah. in not all things, as Slaughterdike points out, but special things. At least special things. And maybe all things, but just veiled in most things. Yeah, but there are some things like that stone yeah. that yeah. are Privileged capable objects, yeah. of, like, if you stare at them for an hour, they will look back. Look, I did this, because you, you assigned this... Uh, in the weirding course we did together. Um, and so a bunch of students in that course decided to try it out. Uh, I decided to do it as well. Um, I found out, I didn't know this, that there was one Rothko at the National Gallery in Ottawa where I live. So I went and tracked it down and I spent close to an hour, uh, I think it was 48 minutes with it not looking away, just sitting with it. I did everything as you, as, you as you requested. But before I say what happened, I want to tell a parallel story because my mother, um, my, my mom has the green thumb. She, like, plants just, like, grow in proliferation around her. That's an interesting thing, by the way, green thumb. You'd think, oh, it's just that they're really good at gardening, but there's some people, no. there's just some, like, bio force field yeah, yeah. that plants dig yeah. and they grow for that person. She's very good at gardening because she knows plants love her, so she's gotten good at it. Yeah. But there's something inherent. Like, our plants in our house don't do so well. Uh, the plants in around Your plants hate you. Anything around my mom will grow like to its maximal. It'll basically it'll get in shape. It'll change its life, you know. <laughs> so she bought this tropical indoor plant that you know it, it just basically remains a kind of like it's it doesn't grow very much in the climate that I live in. But for some reason, this plant decided <clears throat> it would go like full jungle on her. It is now, uh, it must be 10 years old. It's in her bedroom and it takes up almost half the room. It is huge. And one year it even did something which it, she had writ, read and, you know, other people who know their shit had told her it cannot do in our climate, which is to produce a bloom, a flower. The ugliest fucking flower I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> but it, and Leslie was like, it's so obscene. It's like, it's like, it's like revealing, it's like, putting out its sexual organs for your mom. 
<laughs> it, was just like, it was this one disgusting flower just suddenly appeared. Like if if these if these plants, like they just like put put a loincloth on yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Thing. Put something <laughs> on that. If if these if this plant naturally produced this flower up here in the northern hemisphere, no one would get this plant. But there it was, this big ugly bloom. So this flower really helped, well, loves my mom, and I was reminded of that. In my long viewing ex- exercise, it just—it's so funny. It's just like your plant really loves your mom. It's like this is its gift. It's like here you yeah. go. Yeah, it's I like know. Really exactly. ugly, obscene yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah I know. And, and I'm guessing your mom loves. Oh, yeah, she loved it. Like like a good mother. She's like, you made yeah. that for me. Thank you. It's, yeah. I love it. Yeah, she was like the uh, you know the horror movie maternal figure who's like petting like a fucking half human creature (laughs) my child um so i was reminded of that because what happened to me was this i went in and i found the rothko it was like a kind of like a reddish orange and white those were the two um color fields and uh and so i just start looking at it and i spend time with it and slowly i'd read this about rothko's you feel that it's looking at you it's like his paintings are like portals but more than portals um Maws, or something like yeah. just say yeah, uh, vortices. And, yeah, it, something's alive in them, and I felt that quite early on. But at the very end, in the last five minutes, I've been staring at this thing for a long time, and I'm hearing people walking around me and just ignoring, just totally focused on it. And suddenly, at the interstice, at the meeting point of the two fields of color, suddenly shines forth uh, an absolutely blinding. Um, light. I can't, I don't know how to explain. It was this shining light that emerged from the painting and it was cyan, that color that supposedly doesn't exist. It was this beautiful turquoise, you know, cyan, it's like turquoise. Mm -hmm. It's this amazing color that I don't know how, I mean, maybe some physicist or some optics person could explain to me how this emerged, but it suddenly happened after 40 you know, 45 minutes of looking at this thing, boom, this color came out. It was almost like that bloom. It just gave me this thing. It's like, yeah, you've been looking at me long enough. Here's my real, I'm going to show you my true colors. Ah, so interesting. And I left it. And as I was leaving, Leslie was looking at the other artworks and she came to get me at the, when her phone went off because she knew I had to do this long thing. She came to get me and I was leaving the room and I I bowed to it. I I did a genuflection because I'm Catholic. Um, And, um, I'm leaving the room and I could, I turned back and I could see it looking at me. It was the weird, like a zoo animal that you connect yeah. with and then you're leaving. And it was like, I hope you come back, mm-hmm. you know, Yeah. because I showed you something I don't show everybody. So there are three colors in that painting. Wow. Uh, in fact, there's one color in that painting because I couldn't even see the red and the, and the white. And it's not like I was like, you know, focusing on it and some kind of like um, exerting like my eyes. Like I was just looking because at it. Because you can't, because actually with this, event score you kind of can't like you're you're you're, gonna shift around you're gonna shift around your feet will get tired you'll move yeah one thing i was like always remain in visual contact with the artwork but you can sit on the floor or and i was doing all that you're gonna zone out you're you're gonna you know you're gonna look away that's fine just like you know look at it again just be with it it's not about like trying to like look really hard your senses yeah yeah, it isn't about that it's actually the procedure is gentle the yeah. outcome is hardcore. Yeah, it was really hardcore. And it it showed me, I mean, it's something I've been going on about. I mean, I've experienced similar things reading novels and poems and just feeling this, this sentience. But to, that was a particularly 
physical, um, a physical metaphysical event. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, you put the physical in metaphysical. <laughs> um, it was really intense, and uh, I feel like to this day I experience that memory and I experience that painting in my memory as a being, a a, a, per, a, a vow that I met. Yeah, and that is sitting there in that museum wanting people to stop and stay a little longer um it wants to show people that cyan you know um mm. it's amazing to, to think that we might live in a world that weird yeah to me it's like but we do the, the truth you know the real will astound the shit out of you is what i know is true that if we knew what was going on, we would be absolutely astounded. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, And, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.